Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first full episode of Kid Kong at the Movies. I am your host, the one and only Kid Kong, and today we're going to be discussing Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was initially released in theaters in 1988. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis, who was also known for directing Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future trilogy, and generally as a visual effect innovator. In the 90s, he had Death Becomes Her, Forrest Gump, Castaway, eventually get to the Polar Express in the 2000s. He's he's a very well-known director. It was written by Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. They were known for writing Trenchcoat, Doc Hollywood, the Wild Wild West movie, and also Jim Carrey's turn at How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Who Framed Roger Rabbit was based on a book called Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which was written by Gary Wolf in 1981. It was a mystery novel starring a character called Roger Rabbit, who is a comic strip character, not actually a cartoon character. He's initially offered his own strip, but it's reneged on by his uh, owners, the DeGreasy brothers. He hires Eddie Valiant, a private investigator, to find out why. And while the evidence of this points to his lack of talent, he's actually murdered in his home. A speech bubble, the only way strip characters can communicate in this book, implies that he was censored for something. Suspects for this include his widow, Jessica Rabbit, Baby Herman, his photographer, and eventually Eddie Valiant runs into his doppel, or his other self. Now, comic strip characters in the book are capable of producing doppelgangers that can last anywhere from a few minutes to a few hours. Due to the fact that he was about to be murdered, Roger Rabbit's doppelganger can last for several days. And this is how he is able to work with Eddie Valiant to try and clear his name. Disney bought the rights for the book in 1981 with the idea of turning it into a motion picture. The first two drafts were not as satisfactory as what Disney had hoped for. And eventually, Steven Spielberg was brought on as an executive producer along with his production company, Amblin Entertainments. Richard Williams was hired to supervise animation, and because he chose to be based out of the UK, which we will get to more of that as we go, they moved production to England in order to accommodate Williams. Now, this movie was plagued by some scheduling issues. Budget was increased. Uh, what was initially supposed to be about, a, I think, a three to four month production ended up lasting almost seven. And that's not including post-production. This movie received much acclaim upon release. Critics absolutely adored it. Even the ones who had negative things to say about it, it was rather a middling negativity towards it. Praise was much directed at its visuals, the humor, the writing, and especially the performances of one Bob Hoskins, who portrayed Eddie Valiant, and Christopher Lloyd, who portrayed Judge Doom. It won three Academy Awards for both Best Film Editing, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. And it was also awarded with a Special Achievement Award. This movie not only brought renewed interest in the golden age of animation, which included such luminaries as Mickey Mouse, Tom and Jerry, Bugs Bunny, and the general Mary Melody's crew, it spearheaded the Disney Renaissance era. In 2016, it was selected to the U.S. National Film Registry by Library of Congress for significance. Now, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, to give you a brief summation, because I really don't want to spoil the movie, although it's been out for, at this point, 32 years, close to 33, 
you never know who hasn't seen it. Uh, to give a brief summation of it, Eddie Valiant is portrayed by Bob Hoskins. He's hired by the head of a tune production company called RK Maroon to take some pictures to prove to Roger Rabbit that his wife is being unfaithful. Eventually, the man that his wife was unfaithful with is murdered, and Roger Rabbit professes his innocence and asks Eddie Valiant to help him so that he does not face what is known as tune judgment from Judge Doom, the dip, which is the only way that you can destroy a tune. Roger Rabbit was voiced by Charles Flesher, who's known for being a Nightmare on Elm Street. He voiced characters in We're Back, a Dinosaur Story, also a Steven Spielberg production. And he was also the elf general in the Polar Express. Roger Rabbit is an amalgamation of many classic characters. If you ever really give him a close look, he's got the gloves, the style of red pants with the buttons and no shirt of Mickey Mouse. He's a rabbit, much like Bugs Bunny. He's got very baggy pants like Goofy. He has a blue bow tie like Pinocchio. His head and his nose is generally shaped like Sylvester the Cat. And while he seems to have Wile E. Coyote-style cheeks, his red hair is very reminiscent of Droopy the Dog. He's been described as zany, kind, very humorous and energetic. And naive, not very clever, sure. His closest friends are Baby Herman and Benny the Cab. Cab, rather. And, of course, like all tunes, he's very nervous around Judge Doom. He's very nervous around the dip. And, generally, the Toon Patrol, the weasels that are in the movie. He's very known for saying that making people laugh sometimes is a tune's only weapon, which is something that Eddie Valiant actually uses in the movie. Again, that's not something I really want to spoil. Generally speaking, I'm not going to go too far into plot points on this podcast, simply because I don't like having things spoiled for me. I assume most of you don't like having things spoiled for you. He's not only featured in this movie, but he's actually been featured in multiple theatrical shorts. Uh, one of which was actually the first time I ever saw Who Framed uh, Roger Rabbit himself. Tummy Trouble, which was attached to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, both in the theatrical cut as well as the VHS. Baby Swallows a Rattle, then eventually Robert, Roger does as well. Roller Coaster Rabbit, which was initially attached to Dick Tracy from 1990, but then reattached to Toy Story in 1995. And Trail Mix-Up, which was initially on Far Off Place in 93, and then eventually added on to Treasure Planet in 2002. Roger Rabbit is still owned by the Disney Company, and you will occasionally see him in Disneyland or Disney World. It's, it's not a very common one, but you still see him occasionally. The cast of characters in this was portrayed by some very well-known luminaries of acting, as well as a couple that generally gets a little under the radar. Eddie Valiant was portrayed by Bob Hoskins, who sadly passed away in 2009. Uh, he's known for being in Mermaids. He was Smee in Robin Williams' Hook movie. He played Mario in Super Mario Brothers, which I will eventually discuss that movie as well, because while others may not enjoy it, it is a personal favorite of mine. He was the voice of one of the two gooses, or geese rather, on Balto. He was in Unleashed, and his final theatrical role before his death was Snow White and the Huntsman. Judge Doom was portrayed by Christopher Lloyd, who's of course known as Doc Brown from Back to the Future. He also was on the television series Taxi, for which he won two different Emmy Awards. His very first theatrical appearance, or an acting job in general, was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Jack Nicholson amongst others. 
He also appeared as a villain in both Postman Only Rings Twice and Star Trek The Search for Spock. He's also been in Clue, and his other very well-known role is as Fester Adams in Adams Family in and Adams Family Values. Now, Marvin Acne was portrayed by Stubby K, who was born Bernard Solomon Coatsen. He's well-known as a stand-up comedian, and he also was on Broadway. Not too many live-action movies of note from him. Dolores, the, the waitress from the movie, is portrayed by Joanne Cassidy, who's most well-known for Blade Runner and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. R.K. Maroon, I mentioned him a little bit earlier, was portrayed by Alvin Alan Tilvern. Not much of note for him as an actor. However, he was a war hero and served in World War II. Baby Herman was voiced by Lou Hirsch, who's mainly well-known for television shows, like specifically on like BBC shows. Uh, one in particular is the BBC show My Hero. He reprised his role as Baby Herman in all of the Roger Rabbit shorts. Now, the voice of Jessica Rabbit was Kathleen Turner. She did not return for those shorts. However, she is known for it being in Romancing the Stone, which was one of Robert Zemeckis' early big hits. She was also in Baby Geniuses. And on television roles, she portrayed Chandler Bing's father on Friends. Other miscellaneous voices, Mel Blanc reprised many of the Looney Tune characters that he portrayed, and he actually passed away the year after the movie was uh, released in theaters. Disney characters were also voiced by the long-term actors. And probably most noteworthy to me was the fact that Mae Kessel returned as Betty Boop. The movie development began in 1981 after they initially purchased it with them believing that they could really make this like a, a real big blockbuster type movie. Zemeckis was turned down for the role of director initially because two of his previous movies were kind of box office bombs and they, they were worried that if they had a director who was attached to bombs attached to it, they may not be able to get as many people interested in seeing it. They did produce some initial test footage of Roger Rabbit himself where he was voiced by Paul Rubens, better known as Pee Wee Herman. When Michael Eisner took over Disney in 1985 and revamped it, he decided to revamp the production of the movie. He brought on Amblin Entertainment, which is of course headed by Steven Spielberg. The initial budget was only was about 50 million, which was substantially more than Eisner was willing to pay for it. After they eventually got it greenlit down at about 30 million, which was at the time the most expensive animated film, Jeffrey Katzenberg argued that the combination of the live action and the animation would probably save the animation department at Disney. You see, Disney's animated movies in the early mid '80s, as well as the '70s, they they weren't as well received. Disney was in quite a quite a bit of a slump at that point. You know, everyone really well knows the Disney Renaissance era, which had Aladdin, The Lion King, Tarzan, Toy Story, and and go on and go on from there. Those movies would not have happened were it not for the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. During the course of his contract negotiations, Steven Spielberg actually was able to secure a great deal of creative control as well as box office profits for this movie, while Disney kept the merchandising rights. Spielberg himself managed to convince many studios to lend characters to the film. Now, some of these characters came with stipulations, like Disney and Warner Brothers both provided Donald Duck and Daffy, however... The conditions there was that because of the scene they were involved in, they were to be portrayed as total equals. 
Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse appeared in the same scene and having equal amounts of lines. Apart from that, Warner Brothers had no involvement whatsoever. They they portray they allowed characters like Yosemite Sam, Porky Pig, uh, and a, and a few others to show up. There's there's scenes where you can see the bull from Bully for Bugs, as well as the two hillbillies that Bugs Bunny messes with. In I I'm sorry that I don't know the name of the Merry Melodies cartoon that they were in. However. There were some very well-known comic book characters, and I'm sorry, not comic book characters, uh, cartoon characters that they were not able to get rights to use, including Popeye, Tom and Jerry, Little Lulu, or Casper. Terry Gilliam was actually initially offered the director's part, but turned it down due to it being technically difficult, and he could not reconcile how they would be crossing the animation with the live action. Later on, he admitted that this was pure laziness on him and his end, and he would regret it tremendously when the movie was successful. Due to the success of Back to the Future, Robert Zemeckis was approached to take the helm as he had initially wanted to do so. They decided to go with Richard Williams' animation over Daryl Van Critter's so that they could have the Disney-quality animation that he was known to portray. They also were able to get Warner Brothers-style characterization for their characters, and the general slapstick-style humor of Tex Avery cartoons. Now, the casting on this. Eddie Valiant, the head role that was played by Bob Hoskins. Spielberg's first choice for the role was actually Harrison Ford, which, that, that could have been an interesting choice for that. However, Harrison Ford's asking price was considered too high. Chevy Chase was then approached, but he was completely uninterested in the role. That sounds about right. Chevy Chase is, uh, he's, I'm not going to say he's picky with the roles he takes, but there are certain movies that he just, you just don't see him wanting to do that. Now, Bill Murray was also considered, but due to the rather idiosyncratic method of receiving offers, uh, he missed out. And what I mean by that is they couldn't find him. His agent didn't know where he was. His manager didn't know where he was. They were completely unable to find him, and so he he missed out on that. Now, Bill Murray is an interesting person. He finds his own enjoyment and his own entertainment. He walks his own style of life. He's a, he marches to the beat of his own drum. On the special features of the Stripes 25th Anniversary Edition DVD, they interviewed a lot of the surviving cast members for this, one of which was Bill Murray. However, they could not find Bill Murray for this interview. The production company that was doing those interviews decided, well, okay, we got, we got to move on. We have other things that we have to do. And one of the things they were filming was a miniature documentary on Lolita culture in Japan. They found Bill Murray in a random bar in Japan, a karaoke bar. So they interviewed him for that. One of the things they asked him was, you know, did you know that you were up for the part of, of Eddie Valiant in Roger Rabbit? He looked at them and said, Who? The human character, the, the lead P.I. from Roger Rabbit, he was said to have screamed out loud years later saying that that's something he would have absolutely loved to do. I would have loved to have seen Bill Murray in that role. But having grown up with Bob Hoskins in it, I can't see anybody else on it. Eddie Murphy also turned down the role of Eddie Valiant due to not understanding the filming concept as well as the idea of meshing live action with animation. He also expressed that he regretted this. 
many actors were actually considered for Eddie Valiant. Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone, Wallace Shawn, who's best known for his role in The Princess Bride, you know, the inconceivable character. And Ed Harris, who you'll probably recognize as the coach from, I think he was the head coach in radio. He was on Pain and Gain. He's, he's been in some Western movies as well. Bob Hoskins, when he got the role, in order to help him on his performance, Charles Flasher would dress as a giant rabbit and stand in behind camera for most of the scenes. I, I wish that was made up. <laughs> that, that, that would be a very disturbing thing for some people to see. Now, Jessica Rabbit was voiced by Kathleen Turner, who was actually uncredited for her role in this. Uh, she was pu- They pushed for her to be in this movie because she was in Romancing the Stone with Michael Douglas, which was directed by Robert Zemeckis. She was pregnant at the time, and the only reason she accepted the role was it's a voice acting role. I don't have to actually do anything here. Her singing voice, however, was not provided by Kathleen Turner. Her singing voice was provided by Amy Irving, who has appeared on Broadway in Amadeus, as well as some television shows. Now, at the time the movie was produced, she was actually married to Steven Spielberg. They had initially began dating in 1980, somewhere around there, and when they split up, that split actually cost her the role of Marion Ravenwood in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Not The Last Crusade, I'm sorry. Uh, The one with the arc, I'm I'm sorry. I've had a very long week, and I just... For some reason, the title of that movie is escaping me. The next acting uh, role they needed to cast was Judge Doom. Now, several people auditioned for this, but the one that struck out the most in my mind was Tim Curry, who, of course, is well-known for portraying Pennywise in the made-for-television Stephen King's It. He was also in Home Alone 2, playing the hotel concierge. He was in Clue. Uh, He's, of course... Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is an absolute favorite movie of mine. His audition terrified Robert Zemeckis, Steven Spielberg, and Michael Eisner. Three full-grown men were so terrified by this audition, they said, we, we can't do this. You're too scary. We, we want to be able to... We, we don't want to terrify that many people, you know? Christopher Lee, who is known for playing Saruman the White in the Lord of the Rings movies, as well as his earlier work as Dracula, was considered, but he turned down the role as well. John Cleese expressed interest. John Cleese is very well known for Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as well as other Monty Python productions. But it was deemed that because of his demeanor and his performance was too friendly to portray such a negative character as Judge Doom, just it wasn't going to work out. Other actors that were considered included Peter O'Toole, F. Murray Abraham, Roddy McDowell, and Sting. Now, that's the musician Sting, not the professional wrestler Sting. Although Steve Borden, the professional wrestler, actually owns the trademark for Sting. Now, Christopher Lloyd was cast due to the fact that he had prior experience with Robert Zemeckis and Steven Spielberg. Favorably comparing his part in this movie with his role in The Search for Spock as both characters were overtly evil yet fun to play. In order to help portray the character and in order to convey a sense of menace and unease with this character, Christopher Lloyd would not blink while he was on camera. That's that's terrifying. <laughs> now, on the writing of this, Price and Seaman continued writing with Spielberg and Zemeckis on board. They, they studied the works of Walt Disney, 
Warner Brothers cartoons from the Golden Age. And a lot of focus was put on the works of both Tex Avery and Bob Clampett. The movie Chinatown helped in in part to inspire the Cloverleaf Streetcar subplot. However, the main uh, reference for that was actually based on something that happened in the 40s. Car and tire companies in the 1940s teamed up to help buy out the Pacific Railways out of business. That's why there's a the freeway that it goes through California is where the old red car Pacific Railways used to run. During the writing of this, there was a lot of uncertainty for the villain role, which led the scripts to either use Jessica Rabbit, Baby Herman were used as the villains, but they they just they couldn't get anything quite right. When Judge Doom was created, oh, he was he was perfect for the villain role. They they minted him the villain, and that was it. There were a couple things that happened with Judge Doom that did not make it past the developmental stage. Doom was initially used to have a large animated vulture. Now this would not be the Warner Brothers vulture that is constantly trying to get Bugs Bunny or his ma, as he would call her. It was a much scarier-looking vulture. There is some concept art that you can look at. But due to the technical difficulties of maintaining that animated vulture on Christopher Lloyd's shoulder, it, it just it, they couldn't do it. He also, at one point, was going to have a suitcase that would have 12 small animated kangaroos they would act as a quote-unquote jury with their animated joeys popping out of their pouches with letters spelling, you are guilty. This was cut for budget and technical reasons, but it would have been a nice little touch at a, at a kangaroo court. Uh, the Weasel Toon Patrol, which were stupid, smartass, greasy, wheezy, and psycho, they were meant to satirize the seven dwarves. However, two of the seven weasels were written out. Now, further references like the Ink and Paint Club, which is the club that Eddie Valiant goes to watch Jessica Rabbit perform. It was made to resemble the Harlem Cotton Club, while Zemeckis compared Judge Doom and his dip to Hitler's final solution. Yikes. (laughs) It was also meant to have originally been that he was the hunter who shot Bambi's mother. However, it was felt that trying to give too much exposition on this villain. They, they, they didn't want to, they, for pacing reasons, they had to get rid of that. And there was other things they had to cut for pacing reasons as well. Marvin Acme's character, his funeral, was meant to be portrayed as well with massive amounts of Toon cameos. Like every Toon imaginable outside of the ones that they could not get the rights for were to appear. However, because of the expense in animating all these and what it was due to the pacing, they ended up having to cut that. Benny the Cab was originally actually going to be a Volkswagen Beetle, but it was changed to be a cab when they realized that the coloration of the cab would work a little bit better, plus the idea of someone catching a taxi in tune world or otherwise. Now, Who Framed Roger Rabbit was not initially meant to be the name. Uh, Many working titles were considered, including Murder in Toontown, Toons, Dead Toons Don't Pay Bills, I think that's probably my personal favorite, Toontown Trial, Trouble in Toontown, and Eddie Goes to Toontown. They were really hung up on the idea of having the name Tune put into this title on this. But in the end, they decided to go with a very similar title to the book, which was Who Censored Robert, Roger Rabbit. Instead, they went with Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Now, as earlier stated, they moved filming to England in order to try and accommodate Richard Williams and his animation. The reason for this is because Richard Williams was, quote, unquote, 
openly disdainful of the Disney bureaucrat bureaucracy, and he flat out refused to work in Los Angeles. He considered Los Angeles to be a hell pit, and he just did not want to be there. Walt Disney Animation UK was built specifically for him for that reason. In return for his help with this, Disney and Spielberg helped distribute his unfinished film, The Thief and the Cobbler. I don't know if any of you have ever actually seen that movie. There was a there's a lot of animated movies that came out in the 90s that were not full real Disney movies, nor were they Don Bluth productions, and they got lost in the shuffle. Now, for the animation duties, while they did build him a studio in the UK for him to use, they still split animation between that building and a specialized unit in Los Angeles for other filming purposes. Because of this and other issues with the writing and the casting process, the budget continued to rise while the shooting was extended. When the budget hit almost $40 million, Michael Eisner nearly shut down production of the film. At this point, he felt that the film was becoming too costly and he didn't think that it was going to make back its budget. Jeffrey Katzenberg pleaded and begged with Eisner, to let the film production continue. And eventually he relented. The budget eventually hit $50 million. Vista Vision cameras with motion control were used for the photography of the live action scenes with the composite animation added in. In order to try and help the actors' portrayals, considering many of them were going to be working alongside tunes that, frankly, they could not see, they used rubber mannequins of Roger, Baby Herman, and the Tomb Patrol in order to help the actors with where they were going to look. If any time a tune needed to pick up, whether it was a coffee cup, a bar of soap, uh, a baseball bat, anything like that, they would use wires or robotic arms with marionette strings to hold these things up so that they could react with them. Filming finally began on November 2nd, 1986, over five years after Disney purchased the rights for the movie, and it lasted seven and a half months in England, with an additional month in Los Angeles at Industrial Lights and Magic for the blue screen effects. Post-production lasted a further 14 months. That, that's a long, long amount of post-production. Lord. Now, the film was made prior to CGI and digital compositing were widely being used. So, a lot of the animation was done using cell shading and optical comp composition. Music was produced by Alvin Silvestri with the London Symphony Orchestra. Alvin Silvestri has done a lot in the music industry. He's very well known for the themes to Back to the Future, uh, things like that. Now, Michael Eisner had issues with the release idea for the film because he felt that it was a little too risque with some sexual innuendos. And it was thought that, you know, this might be a little too lowbrow for certain adults to be able to entertain. Too, like, too sugary, as it were, in certain scenes that adults wouldn't necessarily enjoy it. But it was also felt to be a little bit too adult for children at times. However, Zemeckis, due to his contract, had final cut privileges and absolutely refused to make the alterations. In order to offset this and try and protect Disney's name a little bit in case there was blowback, Michael Eisner agreed to release it under Touchstone Pictures rather than Disney. Now, Touchstone and Miramax both had been bought out or were rather started by them. Buena Vista's biggest opening weekend ever with this film. 
So his concern that this was going to be too risque and it wasn't going to make back its budget? Yeah, no. It, it, on its opening weekend in 1,045 theaters, it made $11,226,239. This was in 1988. That's a substantial amount for an opening weekend. That's that's very substantial. It made $156 million in North America and over $173 million international for a grand total of $329,803,958, which at the time made it the 20th highest grossing film of all time and the second biggest in 1988 behind only Rain Man, which starred Tom Cruise and Dustin Hoffman. It... As I said, with with this movie came out, it achieved near universal acclaim. It had ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Now I don't know who puts much stock into Rotten Tomatoes reviews, but that that seems decently impressive. And Roger Ebert gave it four out of four stars himself, and actually dedicated a great majority of an episode of his and uh, Gene Siskel's review show to discuss many of the animation scenes and many of the, the crossovers. There are some urban legends about this film. It's only a few. Uh, The most notable of which were some nudity, supposedly, on the part of Jessica Rabbit. Now, having seen what they're talking about, it's not that they had nudity with Jessica Rabbit. When they released the movie on Laserdisc, people discovered that if you go by frame by frame, there's a scene in which Jessica Rabbit and Eddie Valiant are riding in Benny the Cab... He runs over some dip and spins out, and they get thrown from the vehicle. As they are rolling on the ground, if you take it on a frame-by-frame and pause it just right, it looks like Jessica Rabbit is not wearing underwear. That's that's not the case. That's just that in the 1980s, animation was, frankly, limited on this juncture, and they they, they missed a couple, couple frames. That, that's all that was. Uh, Baby Herman had some issues with some adult fans because they felt that it was rather inappropriate that he at one point walks underneath of a woman and sticks his hand up into her dress. And he also himself makes a quote that he's got the libido and wants of a 53 year old man with a three year old's body. I can't really defend that because there is a scene where it does appear that he sticks his hand up a dress. However, the idea is that he did so with a finger extended and then drooled. I I personally have never noticed that. A big one. During the piano duel between Donald and Daffy Duck, at one point, some fans believe that Donald Duck refers to Daffy using a racial slur. What he actually says is doggone stubborn nitwit. I'm not going to tell you the word that people think that he said. You can probably judge that one for yourself. Jessica Rabbit gained a lot of attention out of this movie as a quote-unquote sex symbol, which a lot of people say they're not very comfortable with because she's a cartoon. There's a substantial amount of animated erotic issues on the internet that you can find, that you could find even in the 90s. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, This is personally one of my favorite Bob Hoskins performances. Um, I don't really have many negative things to say about the movie if any at all. Uh, It still holds up remarkably well today. If it weren't for this movie, movies like Cool World, which is another cartoon characters who live in the same world as real life characters movie starring Brad Pitt, which I will discuss this movie at a future date as well. 
And Space Jam really wouldn't have been made because the idea of mixing animation with live action, while it had been done before in earlier movies, very, very sparingly and nowhere near to the level of interaction that Who Framed Roger Rabbit did. And it, it again, this movie, because of how successful it was, it revitalized Disney's animated department. I mean, if it weren't for the success of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, we may not have gotten the Disney Renaissance era to the extent that we did. Um, there were a lot of individual things that happened during this movie that I, I really liked, like a lot of little touches they did. One of the things that they had was where they had like at Marvin Acme's headquarters, of course, if you've watched Looney Tunes, Acme, almost everything that Wile E. Coyote gets supplied with is Acme-related materials. And I believe that actually at one point it was written that they felt that he was going to be the one who was actually supplying the stuff for Judge Doom with the dip. They ended up not going with that for whatever reason they was that they chose. But one of the things that they had in one of the boxes at Acme's warehouse was like a, a hole in a box. You could take these holes and you could slap them on a wall and you could stick your arm in it. Kind of like how the Roadrunner will turn and run through a solid painting on, an, on a, a cartoon. And Eddie Valiant actually uses one of these holes to cut through a magnet holding him in place. And it, it holds up really well even today. <clears throat> the scene where Eddie Valiant goes to Toontown and thinks that he sees uh, Jessica Rabbit, but it turns out to be a character named Lena Hyena. That, that's, that's a hilarious moment. Um, there are many Disney characters that you can see in this movie from earlier movies. Uh, Dumbo has a key moment. Uh, you, at one point you see the brooms from the Sorcerer's Apprentice short on Fantasia, as well as the dancing hippo and a, a couple of ostriches. Uh, Porky Pig has an appearance at the end of the movie where he apparently coins his that's all folks phrase at that point. This movie takes place in the 19... Late 1940s, I want to say 1947, 1948, something like that. And there's, I mean, at one point you see Yosemite Sam, because Toon World is right next door to Hollywood. Uh, I, I can't say enough good about the movie. Really, I can't. It's one of my personal favorites. I've seen it many times over the years. If you have never seen it, I implore you, go give it a chance. And if you have seen it, watch it again. Now, something did happen when the movie came out uh, because of the success that it had. In 2002, Gary Wolf, the writer of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, actually sued the Disney company over the royalties from merchandise and sales. At that time, it was denied by the trial court. However, the California Court of Appeals in 2004 disagreed with that initial denial and vacated the trial court's order, and it went back to trial at that point. It, by March of 2005, Gary Wolf estimated that he was owed somewhere in the neighborhood of $7 million in residuals from merchandise, sales of DVDs, etc. Disney disputed this claim and claimed that Wolf actually owed them due to an accounting error. Towards the end of 2005, I don't have a whole lot of notes on that simply because I'm not a paralegal. I don't have, I mean, all this is public record, I'm sure, and you could probably look it up. But Wolf eventually won his suit in 2005, but he only got, I think, about $400,000. So really not, not that much, honestly. Now, at one point, they did want to make sequels or prequels to this. And the, most, the one that actually got a script written out would have been a prequel 
<coughs> on who it was that actually discovered Roger Rabbit, and it would have eventually revealed that his mother and father was Bugs Money. You heard that right. Mother and father was Bugs Money. However, despite the fact that the script exists, Robert, Robert Zemeckis and others have stated that they, they doubt the movie will ever actually get made. There's just there's too much in the way of that. Uh, Gary Wolf still has the rights for Roger Rabbit as far as the book goes, and as a matter of fact, has produced several other books about the character, the most noteworthy of which is Who Plugged Roger Rabbit, which establishes that the events that happened in the movie was actually more of a dream sequence for that Robert, Roger Rabbit, rather. But I don't have a whole lot more to say on the subject, folks. Uh, the performances of the characters they had in, the, the iconic moments that have come out of that movie, ranging from the high-pitched squealing that Judge Doom makes at one point, and again, I'm, I'm trying not to spoil too much on this plot. The the weasel's laughter was always a source of entertainment for myself and my older brother. I mean, we would rewind the VHS over and over and over just to laugh at a five-second clip. It was hilarious. Um, but yeah, genuinely one of my most favorite movies that I've seen, and shockingly is 32 years old now. You know, uh, in order to prepare for this, in addition to the research I did, I went ahead and watched the movie again, and I owned the 25th anniversary edition DVD Blu-ray set. You know, there's... It's crazy to think that that movie has been out for 32 years. Time is an illusion, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> but on that note, I think we can go ahead and draw this one to a close. Um, the next episode that I'm going to be doing will be on a rather unsung moment for me, the comedic stylings of Arnold Schwarzenegger in Kindergarten Cop. Now, he's had some, um, I guess you could call them comedic terms with things like Junior. Uh, Twins was actually really enjoyable. Arnold Schwarzenegger generally is a is an underappreciated comedic actor. He's he's shown that he has excellent comedic timing, and I'm genuinely looking forward to researching this and watching it again. Now that episode will drop two weeks from when this episode drops. This episode is actually going to drop on the I want to say it's actually the 17th that this will air on a Sunday. So future episodes will be dropping on Sundays as well. And again, eventually I do plan on. Moving on and discussing and individual actors as well. And I'm going to have some guests on that are rather partial to certain movies. And I apologize if this episode is not terribly long. While there was quite a bit of information to look into for this. It's it's just not... The way I talk, think, <laughs> I talk a little fast sometimes. And as such, some things can just fly by a little bit. Plus, when you're talking by yourself... It's it's real easy to finish up quickly. Now, when I have guests on, the episodes will probably be a little bit longer. And I... That's pretty much all I got, folks. So, until next time, when again, we will be discussing Kindergarten Cop. This is Kid Kong saying I'll see you at the movies.